gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen. Before we get to this week's episode, I wanted to share some updates. We shared a couple of weeks ago on our Parenting in the Pews episode. That includes some sermon notes, notebooks, including two different sermon notes, notebooks for children. One of them is for younger children that are just beginning to learn to read, and one for a little older as they are able to read by themselves. We're also releasing some catechism and scripture memory books and some Bible reading and prayer journals. Those will be released this week, Lord willing, the beginning of the week. We will have links on all of our social media as those are released. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And we have one of our favorite guests with us again. I think this is the fourth time we've had Amy Bird on. And she probably doesn't need too much introduction because... We've had her on many times, and I know so many of our listeners have enjoyed your books. We're going to be talking about your new book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And I know even the title has gotten a little bit of controversy out there. But I really want to focus on the book, Amy, and what the book is about. Some of the stuff I've seen, I feel like maybe has missed the whole point of the book. But I'd like to just first ask you what led you to write this book? Yeah, um, I feel like my, my books kind of build off of one another in a sense. So as I was writing about uh, women's ministries in the church and No Little Women um, and investing in the women and equipping women, um, that led me to then have to get to the, the brother-sister question, uh, you know, just within the church, our relationships with one another. And, um, and then in writing about that, I really, you know, in learning about that and writing about that and sharing about that, it really made me 
want to move towards my real goal, which is talking more about discipleship and how lay people are discipled and really to address some of the problems I see with discipleship being taken out of the church uh, and the parachurch has kind of taken it over and we've kind of let it in a lot of ways. Um, but also it, as a woman writing about this, um, I, I seriously have roadblocks in front of me that I see many women do in the church in the way that women are often discipled differently than the men are. Um, and that this whole, you know, back to the parachurch, this whole parachurch movement of biblical manhood and womanhood has affected the way that we're discipled in the church. So, um, in kind of forming the book, uh, and how I was going to approach it, my main desire was discipleship for lay people. What, what are the rest of the 98% of us who aren't church officers? What are our, what's our honor and responsibility to one another in the church? And, um, but then in doing that in talking to my editor, she, she definitely was like, you need to address this roadblock head on as well. So I'm doing two things there um, in the book. And that's, and that's why I wrote it though, mainly is because I, I wanted, I deeply, like my passion in writing and speaking is discipleship. And having read the book, that certainly comes through as, as the dominant theme um, throughout the book. Uh, I wanted to know or ask a little bit about, you know, the, the title of the book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Mm-hmm. You know, why the title? What's it referring to? Um, <laughs> what should we we be recovering from? You know, what's mm-hmm. what's going on with the title? Right. So, um, you know, when you're publishing a book, you end up your first title usually gets scrapped. <laughs> and uh, I had a much more indirect title uh, planned, <laughs> but um, yeah. So, recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood is a reference to a book that came out about thirty years ago from the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's a book that I read early in my marriage because I wanted to be a biblical woman badly. I wanted to be a good wife. Uh, My parents are divorced um, and they're remarried and and good marriages now. But um, I felt like, you know, I want to learn this early. I want a good marriage. (laughs) And, uh, so I soaked up what I was reading in this book, but you know, here I am, like I married at 21 years old and, um, and I'm reading from men and women who I've learned from in a lot of ways in the church in this book, the contributors. Um, however, I was stumbling over some of the things in there, but I, you know, I gave them the credit for, you know, their education and their, their influence and experience um, to know more than me. But then now having been married for um, almost 23 years, I returned to the book because of all of the growing problems I was seeing just in the whole movement uh, of biblical manhood and womanhood that, you know, we've kind of been swimming in, in uh, the complementarian quote unquote churches. Um, and it was very eye opening to, as a ma- more mature woman to come back to the book and, and see all of it the error and biblical error in there. Some of it's pretty serious. So I do feel like there's this, you know, that, uh, that whole idea of a lot of things that we need to unlearn. And, and that's like kind of 
why I put the recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood. And really with the, um, the subtitle there, how the church needs to rediscover her purpose. It's as great as it is that we want to be biblical, just because we put the word biblical in front of it doesn't make it so. Um, so uh, although we do want to be biblical as men and women, our, our purpose um, is uh, eternal communion with the triune God. So I'm trying to put, put the train back on the track in that way. I could, you talked about that in the book, you, um, you know, being a young wife and wanting Mm -hmm. to be a good godly wife. And it was very, I related very much to that. I read recovering biblical manhood and womanhood the first time the year before I got married. And then again, about 15 years later, and I was thinking as I read the second time, did I miss all this stuff the first time? (laughs) Because now there's things sticking out that I don't think that's so right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so. a lot of good stuff in there too. Yes. I, I say that in the book, you know. Um, and you say that in your book. <laughs> right. I don't want to throw everything out, but um, I, I, do, I do think it's important to address some of these issues that have been taught to us in the church. And, um, and it's interesting too, because, you know, I was just saying how discipleship has kind of been taken out of the church um, we've given a lot of the influence for discipleship to the parachurch now. And you see that is exactly what's happening with this movement of biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, it's kind of indoctrinated us as a parachurch. Oh, even to the point, I think, that I see often that if you fail to agree with somebody or something in it, some part of this, what we've been told biblical manhood and womanhood is about, then you're looked mm-hmm. at with suspicion. Right. Some. So you, you know, starting from the cover of the book, that's beautiful. You use the motif of the yellow wallpaper yes. throughout the book. And um, I want to read one quote that you have. Uh, okay. This isn't a man bashing book. I think that's important. <laughs> and this isn't a woman empowerment book. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a book that appeals to the reader to look at the yellow wallpaper in the church and to do something about it. So can you talk about the meaning and significance of that? Of the yellow wallpaper? Yes. Sure. So I, I read this very short novella. Um, it was written in the 1800s. It's called The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And um, so she, it's about this woman and she's, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman wrote this because of her own experience going through this. So it's, it's in one sense, kind of like an autobiography, but um, you know, she makes it into a a novella about someone else. And this woman uh, had postpartum depression. However, you know, that wasn't a diagnosis at the time, but as the reader, you can see that pretty clearly. Um, But at the time, a lot of people were developing, you know, a quote unquote nervous condition that was being diagnosed as neurasthenia, and uh, it was treated differently for for men and women. It basically, um, they thought that it was our inability to keep up with the modern pace of life that was causing this this, um, nervous condition. So these women women were put on rest therapy. They weren't to socialize, they were to stay in in the home, they weren't to do anything intellectual. Um, And however, men, when they were diagnosed with it, they were told to like, get outdoors, do push-ups, you know, and, and do all this manly stuff, ride horses. And um, so for her, the woman in the story, 
she was a writer and, and this was terrible uh, treatment for her. So she is, her, her husband's actually the doctor too. And um, she goes along with this and you see her, you see her as she's writing these secret journal entries is what the book kind of is um, going crazy into at the end of the book. She really is crazy. And the yellow wallpaper kind of represents all is the yellow wallpaper in her room uh, that she is to stay in, in this house that he rents out and for her to get away from society. And uh, she starts to think that there's a woman behind all the, the confusing patterns who's trapped in this yellow wallpaper and the wallpaper itself kind of um, symbolizes what they don't see all these patriarchal structures that are um, affecting the quality of life for women and, and even the way that they're treated medically and psychologically. Uh, And so she starts peeling this away, trying to let this woman out. And at the end she, she goes crazy. But I just thought, you know, as a writer, it's a great metaphor for our own blind spots um, in the church today. Because if we, if we say that the church is always reforming, we're always going to have those blind spots. So um, I kind of use this yellow wallpaper image um, to say that, you know, can we recognize these blind spots and if we peel them away, there's something, you know, not just an ugly wall behind it, but something much more beautiful and rich in God's word. So in every chapter, I kind of have a peel and reveal um, section, kind of usually ending the chapter, trying to do that and just using that metaphor throughout the book. I will say that um, Gilman was a feminist, a very active feminist. So a lot of critique is coming at me that I have used this yellow wallpaper image um, from a feminist and therefore am I a feminist? And, um, and, and that's, it's really a shame, I think, uh, to, I'm not trying to identify myself with Gilman and I try to say that in the book as well. Um, but I'm a writer. This is a great metaphor. So I used it. It is a really good metaphor. And um, it's a very uh, disturbing story. I remember reading it in college. It is a story, yeah. Um, when you, in fact, when you started talking about uh, having read it and using it, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that one. Um, it <laughs> yeah, sticks you with you. It. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very, um, very interesting, very compelling. And it does um, explain in a in a very you know, example way, right? An exemplary mm-hmm. way, what was going on around her in her society. Yeah, it's and, a great book. Right. It's very helpful for uh, us to understand what was going on. So um, I thought it's a great metaphor, a great motif throughout the book. Very useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. One of my and, title ideas for the book was uh, the church's yellow wallpaper. Right. So that would have been great too. See? <laughs> Why don't they let writers pick our... <laughs> I mean, we agree to them, so I, I take responsibility. I'm teasing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Um, you talk about in the book, and uh, as well as other places, but you talk about the damage that's done to discipleship by dividing men and women into separate categories with separate focus focuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I like what you said. You know, do men and women have separate aims with a common adjective, biblical manhood and biblical womanhood? Uh, you talk about how we have, you know, devotional Bibles that are specifically geared towards men and women, right? And this lens of interpretation 
of biblical manhood and womanhood that we put on discipleship. Could you talk about what harm this division does to the church and to people in the church? Yeah, I, we, we don't see the division so stark like that in scripture, um, especially in the early church. You know, when we see um, all the church planning going on, we see men and women laboring together side by side. Um, as brothers and sisters, and Paul just continues to use that sibling language, um, men and women need each other. Uh, now, exclusive studies are great to do. You know, I'm not against doing those, but um, we also need to be learning together and exhorting one another um, because the church is missing out if we're only hearing in our own circles and our own sexes. But not only that, um, the resources that are marketed for, and here we have the parachurch kind of leading the way for us again, and we're following, the resources marketed for women's studies um, are different in a lot of ways than the resources uh, for men's studies. Now, sure, there's going to be some that will be helpfully different <laughs> marketed to us, but even, and I kind of talk about in, um, in the first chapter of the book, even when you look at uh, like women's devotional Bibles and men's devotional Bibles, you're going to see some stark contrast in the types of articles that are in them. So in the ESV women's devotional Bible, you have articles on the church and women at risk, eating disorders and other self-destructive behaviors, missional living, emotional health, forgiveness, healing, and shame. And in the men's uh, devotional Bible, you've got uh, articles on leadership, a man's inner life, and why regard self-control as one essential ingredient to biblical manhood, life in the local church, calling, pornography, a man's work. So uh, you see that the, the articles in the, in the women's Bible are kind of targeted uh, to address our weaknesses and our victimhood, and the men's are more about leadership and agency. And, and even when they do talk about a weakness, it's, it's focused on how they victimize women, which, sure, those are things that we should talk about. But um, it's just really interesting to have that contrast. And then another big contrast is that uh, the women's Bible has male authors and, and pastors and professors contributing, uh, men and women, which is great. We can learn from both. But that's not the case in the men's devotional Bible. There are, no, there are no women contributors to the articles or anything like that. So I find that interesting, too. I mean, that sends a message right there that, that women can learn uh, from both men and women. But men should, you know, we don't have anything for them to hear. So I see a lot of, um, I see a lot of differences in the way that the resources are marketed to us. Um, and a lot of the time with the women, it's focused on household duties and um, our weaknesses and then also our, our following men. And for men, it's about agency and leadership and, and all these other things. So it's kind of, it's almost like we're parasitic in a sense, like we don't have a contribution of, of our own as women. And so that, that concerns me. So I have to tell you something a little bit funny that'll lead into my next question. I got your book. Um, I lost my dad in February and we spent lots of time in the hospital and I got your book um, a few days before he died. So oh, wow. I'm sitting here reading your book because if you've ever 
if you ever had to spend a lot of time in the hospital and mm-hmm. um, in that situation, there's lots and lots of downtime. Right. So I'm reading your book and lots of people coming in and out and I'm getting these puzzled looks um, mm-hmm. like, aren't we, what do you mean recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood? <laughs> aren't we supposed to be pursuing that? And I actually mm-hmm. had a great conversation with my parents, um, they had an interim pastor, and he's their their church at that time was a combination SBC Evangelical Free Church, and this was a SBC guy, and mm-hmm. so I started talking to him, and he was completely unaware of things like ESS, and and I said, well, and one of the problems, this is me talking to him, I said, mm-hmm. is that there's this idea that all women in some way submit to all men. And he said, really? Does anyone really teach that? <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I gathered up. I said, you know, give me your email. I'm going to send you. And because I, I had a bunch of screenshots of examples. Mm-hmm. And I've actually heard some, a lot of people say, nobody teaches that. It, it's all through. It's all through recovering for biblical manhood and womanhood. Maybe yeah. not overtly spoken that way. But when we're talking in terms, when you talk about, you know, the story about we submit to our mailman, not, I mean, they don't say it like that, not in the way that you submit to your husband, but there is some sort of authority and submission there. And I think maybe people don't even, I mean, I think there are some people that realize and believe it, but I think some people might not even realize that it's all throughout these materials. I even found a very, very, very popular pastor, his Bible commentary, where he says literally the sentence, all women submit to all men in the church. So how does that lens of authority and submission color these discussions about men and women? It's such yellow wallpaper because, and you're describing it really well, because I think a lot of people will say they don't teach that or they don't hear it being taught. But as soon as, like, so my book is talking about discipleship, lay people, what lay people can do. And I see in scripture, lay people doing a lot in the church. And if I talk about uh, women in any sort of um, teaching or, you know, helping with church planting, like we see in scripture or things like that, the first question often by your first critical question is, well, are you saying that they uh, are being insubordinate? <laughs> you know, like, are you saying that they're right. not being submissive to the men in scripture. And I don't, I need that question explained to me more. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that they're being subordinate to anybody um, or insubordinate to anybody, but that, and I'm, why is the question about authority and submission? I don't even, it's, it's always on the minds in the complementarian church that a woman has got to think about, uh, her submitting to the men around her and not just her husband or her pastor. And, um, you know, I, I do think that we need to be respectful to everyone. Um, but you know, like as a, as a woman, how you're always thinking in the back of your mind about, I don't know, like safety, um, when you're running or alone or, or at night by yourself. Um, I know when I'm traveling for, for speaking and I go to a hotel and there's people all around at the front desk and they ask you, do you want one key or two keys for your room? And uh, I always say two keys so that people around think that there's somebody else 
with me, you know, because I'm always thinking self-defensively as a woman. And this is another area where I feel like we have to think self-defensively that you're not wanting to be disrespectful with anyone anyway. But there's always this question about uh, authority and submission floating around. So I feel like that's a yellow wallpaper right there that needs to be uh, pointed out. Does the Bible teach that all women are supposed to submit to all men? And a lot of people who will say, well, no. But when you start getting into these situations, that's the question that keeps coming up again. So it's like they'll say one thing, and then yet in practice, their beliefs are coming out that that is what they believe. But then, you know, you do see it directly taught all over the place as well. Yes, that's exact. That's exactly, exactly what I've seen. I mean, if you talk about, um, you know, in Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, I can't remember. It's been a, a few years since I read it. But when you're talking about if a woman is a boss mm-hmm. in you know, an office or whatever, fast food place, whatever, and she has to not usurp the God-given authority of any male that's under uh, her as a boss. I mean, that's what's being said, <laughs> that she oh, has well, to submit to him. I mean, I, I can't, I don't know exactly where the quote is in here, but John Piper says in the book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, that in any way that a woman would uh, speak directly to a man with direct influence or something like that. Um, She's subverting God's created order. So I wouldn't have to try to find that one. So what does that mean other than there's some sort of natural authority and submission between all men and all women? Right. Um, If you can't speak directly to a man um, with direct guidance, um, they also say that it is a tone and pattern of leadership that men uh-huh. are supposed to set within um, so that any interaction between men and women, they'll say, you know, we're not saying that all women should snitch all men, but in mm-hmm. all interactions between men and women, the tone and, and pattern should of initiation should be set by the men. Right. So, you know, what, what they you know give with one hand, they're taking away with the other. It's, it's very, um, we're not saying this, but we're saying this. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a bunch of invisible fences up there for us. And it's hard because we run into them all the time (laughs) and, and and we don't know they're there or we do know they're there. We don't know exactly how close in they are, how far out they are. And it's very difficult to navigate. Right. And there's people that actually think this applies to me and my adult sons because Mm -hmm. my three of my sons are, adults they're 20 almost 22 almost 24 (laughs) so Uh now there's some sort of authority or leadership or whatever they're going to call it dynamic between me and my own sons yeah here's the quote i found it to the degree that a woman's influence over a man is personal and directive it will generally offend a man's good god-given sense of responsibility and leadership and thus controvert god's created order that is, and then, you know, the definition that he gives for mature femininity, he says, at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. 
that's what I mean by parasitic. Uh, there's nothing that a woman contributes as a woman. It's affirming male leadership is what femininity is. Is that from the introduction to? Yes. Uh, and so that, that's what I thought, because I kind of remembered that. So that is foundational to how it's we are defining complementarianism. Yeah, it's the first chapter, I think. Let me see here. I, yeah, the, the two definitions, the heart of mature masculinity and heart of mature yeah. femininity, are in all caps. Uh, yeah, they're in capital letters. Uh, yeah, so it's chapter one, a vision of bib- biblical complementarity, manhood and womanhood defined according to the Bible. And it starts with masculinity and then defines femininity in contrast. Right, because masculinity is defined as, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. And, and I've been told I'm misrepresenting what complementarianism is by it's talking about that. foundation, <laughs> yeah. It's chapter one. And it's um, sad because... <laughs> You know, pointing this out, I'm looked at as somebody who doesn't like being a woman or is trying to be rebellious or wants to lead men. (laughs) I love men. (laughs) I love being a woman. I like, you know, I have great male leadership in my life. Um, I make sandwiches for my husband even. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that Um, with love. But um you know, I like being in the kitchen even. So it's, it's just interesting uh, how it's looked at as rebellion to, to challenge some of whether this is biblical or not. Because everything goes back to what's authority and submission and how to apply it. So everything yeah. has to be seen. Right. And I mean, you know, I'm getting in trouble with the title of my book. But Rachel, you got in a lot of trouble with the title of your book, too. Same thing. Uh, yeah. To uh-huh. suggest that there's something beyond authority and submission um, yep. in our relationships Right. As in more than. There's something more than. Right. Um, yeah. You can't, yeah, you get in trouble for that. Well, you know, um, and for those who are listening, you probably know this, but all of us, the three of us, affirm that within the church, only qualified men should be ordained, right? Mm-hmm. So, but even given that in their, our circles, and you talk mm-hmm. about this in the book, questions about women in the church generally revolve around what women are allowed to do or permitted to do. Mm-hmm. So what should we be talking about instead or in addition in our discussions? Right. I mean, by the, the question itself has problems to it because it's just, um, and to me, it sounds a lot like what we criticize about egalitarianism. We're just talking about what a woman is permitted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, is she allowed to go above this line <laughs> uh, in serving in the church or not? And um, we're, we're not talking about why her contribution is needed. Uh, what is it about a woman's contribution that uh, f- fills out uh, the church? Um, what is it about male and female together that's beautiful and dynamic and fruitful? Um, you know, we look at the egalitarian church and say, well, you are being androgynous. You're just flatlining everything. Um, And yet that very question of what the woman is permitted to do um, is not looking at what, how she's valued as a woman (laughs) and needed. 
as a woman in the church. And then also as a, just an unrepeatable human being for her unique contributions. Well, I, I have to tell you um, that I have a couple of friends that their churches, one of them was in a church that had a lot of people that had come out of Mars Hill mm -hmm. um, that had taken issue with uh, Driscoll. And then another one is um, just a Calvinistic Baptist church. But both of these churches, the things that are both in Rachel's book and in your book are things that they've been talking about even before the books were. Mm -hmm. I, I spoke with one of these friends yesterday afternoon, and she said one of her friends is reading your book and, you know, telling her all about it. And she's, um, I think, finishing up um, Elise and Eric's book so yeah. she's got it on the list but hasn't gotten to it but she said even more than me I want from what she's heard about the book I want the leadership in our church to read this book mm. and you know we've talked before about and we talked even to Elise and Eric about this it's so often you have a book that has a woman's name on the title and it's assumed this is a book for women you know mm -hmm. and I've you know I've heard some people that Amy thinks men should read her book, you know, sorts of things. But what is your what is your hopes and goals with this book? Yeah, so um, you know, when when you're trying to put together a submission for a book, you need to think of your target audience and you need to put that in your proposal. And my editor was saying to me that narrow your target audience. You want a broad target. Oh, you want a lot of people to read your book, right? But she was saying, narrow your target audience because um, you need to be thinking and keeping them in mind while you're writing. And um, my target audience, my true desire is for church leaders to lead discussions about this. Um, what you're saying that women from these churches are talking about this stuff before Rachel wrote a book, before I wrote a book. Well, Rachel and I are just picking up on what a lot of women are, are longing for. Um, they're longing to be invested in, in their church. They're longing for good relationships there and good discipleship. And they're longing to be able to, um, to communicate well without being looked at as a threat. And then so that we can commune and share and hold in common uh, God's word. Um, so we're picking up on, on these things and writing about them because it's so many women are struggling with that in the church right now. And my, so my target audience, I want the church leaders to lead the way for us. Um, and so I'm trying to communicate with them, uh, primarily to get a conversation going in their own church. So I have discussion questions at the end of each chapter, um, hoping that that would help lead conversations and they can say where they are. You know, they might not agree with everything I said in that chapter. Um, these are, you know, these are like, I've talked to some church officers saying, we have not thought this deeply about gender, you know? And uh, so we, we don't even know where we are on those things. Um, so I've heard, I've heard from pastors as well and, and church officers telling me, I had to read it a second time to really get your message because the first time I was defensive and I just wasn't seeing it as much. The second time I could see it a lot more. <laughs> so it's, that's, that's really interesting too. 
But yeah, so that's who I had in mind is, is church officers. And it's not a, oh, how dare Amy think that, you know, she wants men to read her book. Um, I think that is part of being a man and a part of being a leader. Um, they are ministering to us. Um, I'm speaking as a lay person and a lay woman. Um, and so that is kind of part of the message of my book is uh, what is the function of the woman's voice in church? And that's very helpful and very good questions. Um, there's several places in your book and I've highlighted some in, in a review and other places that you, you ask those questions for us to think about, you know, what, what place do women have in our churches? And it is mm-hmm. a good question. Uh, not because we want to be, you know, the ordained leaders, but because we want to be functioning as godly women in our churches mm-hmm. you know, with our gifts and our abilities. Yeah. Um, throughout the book, you know, one of the aims that you have is uh, critiquing or, or, or discussing some of the limitations of complementarianism as a movement, mm-hmm. right? especially as it focuses on um, what it means for men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a quote by Carl Truman when he talks about uh, complementarianism and CBMW. And he says that um, it always struck me when I came to the States how biblical manhood as conceptualized by CBMW struck me as remarkably American in its orientation. Mm. And that's, that's not looking down on Americans. It's just struck me that maybe this works in America, but I'm not sure it would work in Britain. And I'm pretty sure it wouldn't work in South Korea. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see, going along with that, you know, um, Colleen and I were talking about, you know, women that we've spoken with who come from different backgrounds or who live in different countries and mm-hmm. looking at these discussions and these debates here and how foreign it seems to them. It, what would you say about the limitations and how American, if you will, it is to try to apply these to all cultures and all backgrounds? Yeah. So um, it's interesting, like an answer, I'll answer that in just a second, but I I was just thinking, I got a message from someone uh, who is uh, leading reformed churches in China and says that how important this message is, this work uh, will, will be in China as they're still seeking an identity as a, as a reformed church, um, which I, I found, I found, it was very humbling <laughs> to read it at first. There's so much I would need to learn about there, but um, it's just interesting to think they're going, other cultures have to think about men and women in the church, but our version of um, biblical manhood and womanhood uh, is very American. It's, it's almost like 1950s ideology. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, one when we were talking on the mortification of spin about that too, just something that I added to that, not only is it um, kind of the American ideal of the, the um, June Cleaver wearing pearls while she's vacuuming in the house with a smile. um, But um, it's also very upper middle class. Um, So I, I think that it doesn't speak to all of the, the different classes in America even. Um, and especially when you think of 
you know, two income households that by necessity, um, single moms, uh, plenty of them. And then I've heard a lot from the African American community complain that, you know, this, um, this quiet woman <laughs> that we are taught to be in biblical manhood, womanhood, is just not their culture. Uh, uh, you know, they say that women aren't quiet like that and they're in their culture. So um, there's just a, a lot of, it's a very small box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not only American. I think it's also has a lot to do with uh, white culture and um, upper middle class culture. There's, there's a girl I've been getting to know from Ukraine and mm-hmm. I'm going to give a shout out to her. her name's Lilia. She, mm-hmm. Uh, she actually even made a video. She says she hasn't read your book yet or Rachel's book, but just been um, observing these discussions. And, you know, here she is in post-Soviet Ukraine. Mm. And, you know, I I even think of myself in in my discussions with her. Here we've got five cars in our house. Well, actually Mm -hmm. six, seven, actually, if you count. (laughs) My, My mom's and my dad's were about to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we'd have, and I, that's only cause I don't drive right now, um, just because of seizures and stuff. And, cool. and here, you know, many of them can't afford a car and, and mm-hmm. many of us have, you know, large houses, 3000 square foot house. And mm-hmm. all of my children have their own bedroom. And, and she was saying that, you know, one income for a man is not enough to even, um, pay for a, a one-bedroom apartment or a two-bedroom apartment. Wow. And so you do what you need to do to feed your family. <laughs> and it, right, I, it's right. just very fascinating. I've so far um, talked to people in the UK, um, specifically in Ireland, um, someone that's from India. And my mom was a – I've talked to my mom a lot about it because she said some of the things that they're putting under manhood and womanhood would be laughable to people in, um, she was a, a missionary in Zaire, which mm-hmm. um, which it was Zaire, and you know just because everyone's doing what they need to do to provide for their families, like she said, women can't stay home there, and it's it's just fascinating to me how many of these things, and I only used one example, are just so American. So when I heard. Carl Truman say that on the mortification mm-hmm. of spin. I, I found it very fascinating. And then it was actually my friend from Ireland that had um, written out that quote because she heard it, heard mm. it also. So it's interesting. Yeah. Very fascinating. Uh, so Amy, I always say that I learned very interesting things about myself by reading what other people say on the yeah. internet. You know, I've learned things. I'm a feminist. I'm an egalitarian. <laughs> oh, that, yeah. yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Antinomians. Yeah. Anti- oh, yes. I, I, <laughs> I learned that I deny the third use of the law. Didn't even know that. Um, very fasc- fascinating oh. things. And actually, I know somebody from Ireland who said, it seems like, um, this is a, a man that I think he's in seminary. He said, I think that some of these words are just thrown out because he, he's not... He, he doesn't know a lot about what's being debated, but he said it seems like people are throwing out feminists the way they throw out words like racist and things like mm-hmm. that. If you don't line up in, in these perimeters that I've mm-hmm. set out, then you are automatically these other things. So, Amy, and I've heard these things about you too. So, mm-hmm. are you a egalitarian? Are you a complementarian? Are you neither? How do you I, distinguish I your beliefs? Yeah, I don't, even though I do uphold male headship in the 
um, home and in the church, I do not call myself a complementarian because of all, it's a movement and it has a lot of bad baggage attached to it um, that I, I can't get behind. Um, so I'm not an egalitarian, but um, so I, I just say that I'm a confessional Christian. <laughs> I think that we're focusing with these words so much on that have, there's so many meanings to them. Um, and I think that our confessions cover enough <laughs> for me to be able to say, okay, I am confessional. Um, and then I can add, you know, answer questions about what I uh, uphold and, and some other areas about men and women. But um, I think that that is just a better place for me to be. And I do, you know, one of the things that um, my critics are really upset about is that I, I quote from egalitarians in the book and um, positively in, in a lot of places and use their work. And um, I also quote positively from complementarians in the book. Um, I also quote from the Pope. <laughs> but no one seems to be concerned that I'm becoming Roman Catholic. Um, I, I build a lot off of Sister Prudence Allen's work in the book. Um, she's a Roman Catholic. Um, so I, I, really, I really want to talk to a broader community. I want to be in conversation with a broader community. I think that um, I've learned a lot from egalitarians. Um, I might not be one, <laughs> but uh, I've learned a lot from egalitarian writing. Um, there's plenty of egalitarians who uphold the authority of scripture and, um, and are working, you know, w wrestling with scripture just like we are. Um, we might come to some different, um, land in some different areas, but I think that it's important to acknowledge that. Um, and I'll just go ahead and say it, uh, egalitarians have been much friendlier to me in disagreements than, uh, you know, those who are supposedly in my own camp in the complementarian world. So that's, that's interesting. That's an indication yeah. that you yeah. must be one. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I must. I must be a seat, a closet one is what I'm being called, a closet egalitarian, and I have this agenda that I just haven't let everybody know yet. Um, but you know, I, I'm learning still, and I'm learning through all this that I definitely want to speak more broadly um, and and be in conversation more broadly uh, than these tight fences that we make. Um, that is what is uh, acceptable, I guess. <laughs> um, to be a conversation partner. Well, I saw somebody say something like, oh, because so-and-so um, seems to like Amy's book, that, that is just a bad, mm -hmm. a bad sign. But the thing is, is there's a lot of egalitarians that disagree with you strongly on things. Oh, yeah. I mean, just you know, gracious. I, I get it on, I frustrate both, you know. Um, uh, one podcast I was uh, booked to do, um, through Zondervan kind of emailed them and said, Oh, uh, you know, we ha we are scheduled to talk to Amy next week and I'm reading her book. And I didn't realize that she's not an egalitarian. Um, you know, I'm only in chapter one, but <laughs> I'm, 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 I don't know that she would be good for our audience. We're egalitarian and, you know, saying all the things that they uphold. And, um, so I responded and I said, no, I'm not an egalitarian. Um, I'm hoping to be in conversation with both complementarians and egalitarians. You're free to say where you, where you stand in different 
areas differently from me and disagree with things in my book, I think that'll make a good conversation. My aim kind of has been to frustrate both ends in a challenging way, you know? So he ended up having me on still, and it was a great, it was a great conversation. We've talked before on the podcast that so often some of these things are reactionary and they're reacting to something that is an error, but we have to be careful not to, you know, end up in an, in another error. And I, I really feel like you're saying, okay, let's go back and see what does scripture say, not just live in reaction to egalitarianism or, mm-hmm. or feminism, but let's really look and see what the word of God says, which I appreciate. Thank you. So um, I didn't run this by Rachel before I'm going to do this, but I I just thought it would be fun. And this is not necessarily a new segment, but Rachel Mm -hmm. and I were on the Plumline podcast um, a few weeks ago. And uh, I can't, they have a segment, but I thought it might be fun to ask you if there's just outside of this discussion. I I think people think that all we ever talk about is these things. (laughs) (laughs) That our whole life is consumed by these things. But but we're wives and moms that are Uh doing everyday stuff. And (laughs) so maybe you could share like a a book or maybe an album or a song or something that you've been enjoying lately. Oh wow. Um well book of the Bible, I'm just entrenched right now in the song of songs. So everything I'm reading right now is, is pretty much related to that. Um, I'm kind of deep in study on it. So um, that would be, I think, and it's interesting because um, you're saying that people think this is all we talk about. Um, well, this, I'm only into week two of the launch of my book. So it is, has been all I've been talking about <laughs> the last two weeks. Um, and, you know, you kind of have to brush yourself back up on what you wrote and <laughs> things like that for interviews. But um, so the song, it, the book being so controversial, um, and, and like you said, you go online and you see these things that people say about you. And uh they're cruel, a lot of them. Um, and, and you see that, oh, wow, these are church officers <laughs> saying these things. And um, you're, you don't recognize yourself and, and what they're saying. Um, but going to the song has been like my comfort uh, lately as, as I'm having to deal with that kind of conflict. So that would be something about me right now that where I'm spending my other time is kind of living in the song of songs. <laughs> Oh, that's that's great. It's been fun hearing that. And no, Rachel and I even uh, will often talk about when we're going through um, trials, I don't know, different things, mm-hmm. how, how much even just music yeah. um, is is helpful. Rachel's been a great resource for me. She's given me mm-hmm. lots of new music to add to my <laughs> my list. My My Spotify list says things like, I have one called Calm. <laughs> like, I'm feeling really anxious. I'm going to yeah, listen to that one. Nice. And one called Comfort and, and stuff like mm. that. And so, and those that didn't listen to the Plumline podcast, Rachel and I um, both really enjoyed the movie Emma. I think Rachel's watched it 52 mm. times. She's so about it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only a few times. <laughs> um, and, and so the, the soundtrack for that has a lot of great mm-hmm. music. Yeah. 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 It's really fun. Yeah. That's cool. I know for me too, uh, 
just getting like physically being able to go outside, especially during this quarantine, been doing a lot of walking <laughs> and uh, just fitness in general really is something I'm into and it, it helps me, I think, holistically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I don't like exercise, so now everybody <laughs> knows, <laughs> um, but very much an outdoors person. So yeah. I've seen, you've posted some pictures on Facebook of some hikes, beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful um, hikes hike. that you've taken. And, and we have been up in the mountains the last two weekends and love hiking and just enjoying God's creation. And uh, Rachel, I know you got to go blackberry picking. I did. It was wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm jealous of that. Well, it's about to hit the six months of summer here in Houston. And so <laughs> you get out while you can because we're about to barricade ourselves in air conditioning. <laughs> we're just hoping for some more 70 days in the 70s. What is the weather like right now where you are? It's funny because spring in Maryland, I mean, I love spring, but it's also very unpredictable. Like, you know, it could be the 50s one day and then the 70s the next day. Um, So, but we've had like a week of cloudy, kind of cloudy days here. So that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, we, it's kind of, I think it's similar here in Colorado. It can get in the 30s at night and then be in the 80s in the day and just... Always oh, wow. crazy. My mom right now is in this. Let's see how long we cannot turn the heat or the air on. That's me. Like, What's the purpose of this game? Okay. <laughs> well, I don't understand it. My kids get so mad at me. I love having the windows up. And I just, uh, I love having that fresh air come in the house and not have the artificial air. And so just to smell it, I don't know, feel it. And the other day it was in the upper seventies <laughs> and the kids were like begging me to put the air conditioning on, put the air conditioning on. But I knew the next day was going to be like 60 degrees. So, uh, we, su- you know, we suffered through it a little bit. Well, there, your kids are, are maybe better than mine who have decided <laughs> if I'm uncomfortable, I'm just going to go turn the air on. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and one, one of them turned the air on. And it was it was one of those days that it got in the 80s during the day. I think it was in the mm-hmm. 40s at night. And then it's, um, you know, you're in the middle of the night and you're freezing cold. It's in the 40s outside and our air is on <laughs> and we didn't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, Amy, it's so fun to talk to you as always. Um, oh, thanks. We're going to link, I mean, I, hopefully people remember the title of the book, but we'll link it in the episode notes. I'll link a couple other things you've written too that I think would be helpful to the discussion. So thanks for joining us and we'll be back next week. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.